There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to the new look, or in this case, new sounding, TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. I'm your host Mark Taylor and joining me from across the pond should be my regular co-host, John Berger. How's it going sir? Hello. So what's been happening with you lately? Uh, (laughs) only so much when you gotta work two jobs. Yeah, I guess. But you've been doing your streaming and stuff, have you? Yeah, yeah, I've been doing a lot of that. And more prop making and, you know, all that fun stuff with whatever this... People have this thing called free time. I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I know how you feel sometimes. Because you've been doing some um, some charity streaming as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's only really for special events. I'm trying to remember what the last one was. Um, my birthday, and I had a big one for Stack Up. Which it's a it's a charity that helps to prevent uh, veteran suicide through gaming. I don't know what happened. I'm guessing that there are, are some oh, what are they called? Um, can't remember the term. But just people who know when these charities are going on and they come in, they drop a bunch of money and leave. Oh, I see. Yeah. One guy came in, dropped like $500 to the charity. Then some other guy came in and he dropped 500 And it's like they had this battle going back and forth until between the two of them, they dropped a total of $2,000 to the charity. And then they wow. just disappeared. It's just like, I'm, they're streaming like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> it's all good. Doesn't matter how it happened. I'm just glad that it happened. Oh, cool. Now, before we crack on with the show, congratulations are in order for TGP nominal honorary crew member Ryan Kobrick, who's recently announced that he's joined the Blue Origins New Shepherd Crew Systems team as the principal environmental control and life support systems engineer. So good luck with your new position, Ryan. Nice. Nice. So he's moving up the ladder, you know, to try and get involved with going to the moon. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, because it's the beginning of the month, it can only mean one thing. And that's our monthly sky guide in conjunction with UK Astronomy. But not only that, it's the return of the objects of the month brought to you by Will from Twice Brewed Stargazing and Will Photography. On canvas with paint, in the artist's school. It is red that is hot, and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Hello, and welcome to UK Astronomy Sky Guide. First of all, though, before we go on to this month and what's on in March, I need to talk about a few things that happened last month because there's a couple of cool things that happened in our skies. First of all, I think we need to talk about the uh, meteor that was seen blazing across the UK skies, which is actually designated SAR-2667. It was really only discovered seven hours before impact. So it didn't actually impact the Earth, it impacted the Earth's atmosphere, luckily. It's actually only the seventh asteroid discovered before impacting the Earth successfully predicted. So it's only the seventh one that we've actually seen probably maybe hours before it's then actually hit 
into the atmosphere and burnt up. That night, I happened to uh, decide that I was going to put my phone down and chill out for the night and not look at it at all. So I missed out. So when I woke up the next morning, I saw loads of pictures, videos of this awesome asteroid kind of burning up and popping and exploding right next to the moon. It was just to the right hand side, I think, of the moon. If you go on our Facebook group, there's loads of videos still on there of it going across and suddenly burning really bright and then popping and disappearing as it burnt up. So it's a really cool thing to see. I missed it. And it's just typical because I always do. But I'm really pleased the guys in the Facebook group got some pictures and videos for us so that people like me who didn't get out to see it or maybe it was cloudy actually managed to see it online and still enjoy the moment. We can hopefully predict lots more, fingers crossed, and people are always looking up in the sky now. There's probably more people looking in the sky than ever. As I said, they can only predict it a few hours beforehand. So keep an eye on your Facebook groups and your astronomy apps and hopefully we might get to see another meteor. But it was really cool. Have a Google of it. Well, what uh, you might also not know about that one is they found the meteorite that caused it. It was found by an 18-year-old called Lois LeBlanc. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And they found it in the town of, I'm going to butcher this so bad, Saint-Pierre-le-Vigère. I hope I got that right. They were actually part of a team that went and looked for it because you know, they obviously had an idea on uh, what that was going to be. They plan on uh, scouring the area with local residents to look for more fragments. So, yeah, that little space ball there has been found. Now, there was something else that's been in the sky quite a lot lately, and that's the aurora. Absolutely loads of people have been out taking pictures, seeing and enjoying this beautiful phenomena. Although it looks beautiful, they're actually quite dangerous because it's where energy and small particles from coronal mass explosions, so pretty much from the sun, come flying across in like a flare, and they hit our magnetic field lines on the Earth. And it kind of hits to the north and the south of the Earth's atmosphere. And sometimes where the particles kind of interact with the gases and get, kind of get into our atmosphere around these magnetic loops, it results in these beautiful displays of light in the sky. So luckily for us, our planet actually looks after us and saves us from these harmful rays and gives us something really nice to look at instead. So if you're interested in trying to see the aurora, I mean, I think I've seen it as far down as London, even further down than that lately. The sun's been really interactive with the Earth and throwing, you know, lots of harmful rays our way, but it's still cool to see. There is a a really good app you can get aurora watch uk and it will actually notify you you can put it onto notifications whether you want medium or high disturbances that are happening it will let you know what the chances are of seeing it in the uk there's also a really cool map it's got that shows you the aurora and how far it's kind of pushing down into the uk it's also got a cloud at the bottom right that if you press on it it shows you the current cloud cover so you can actually see whether it's worth going out or not with the cloud and press it as we know cloud always gets in the way but there's been some fantastic stuff going out there and the aurora pictures have been awesome i've still not seen it I was out one of the nights having a look up, but I was in my garden in Milton Keynes, so it wasn't great and I couldn't get out, unfortunately, but one day I'll get there. I've also found that on that app, there is a, a more button, and if you go on there, they actually have two webcams that gives views from, I think it's a view from a lighthouse and one from sort of like a cliff edge, and they actually stream live images. So if you think it's happening and it's cloudy where you are, pop on, you might be able to stream live images of the aurora happening right there where they have the two cameras. I believe they're probably up in the north sort of Scotland area. So two cool things that have been happening this month, and hopefully, may happen again you never know so keep an eye on those apps keep an eye on the facebook groups and stuff like that now it's on to the month's highlights so venus goddess of beauty she's still up can't be missed as soon as the sun sets she's right there absolutely stunning jupiter's getting lower and lower i think it's probably the last month we're really going to get a view of him mars is still up high and really visibly red it's going to be there for a little while it's really cool to see especially by eye you can see it really well uranus is right by venus but it's going to be hard spot Neptune, Mercury and Saturn are pretty close to the sun, so unfortunately they won't be getting seen. But there's a few planets still up that we can have a look at hopefully. 
It does look like there's going to be a few passes of the ISS this month as well, which I'll be posting in the Facebook group as they happen. Again, there's an awesome app you can get. There's a free ISS tracker app that you can get for iPhone and I believe Android as well. And that will actually notify you when it's happening, how high in a degree it will be going. So that's really cool to get and a really good thing to do. Rather than jumping on our Facebook group and waiting for me to post, get the ISS tracker app and have a look and you can see it go across the sky. So on to the actual dates. So on the 4th, the moon's south side is tipped towards us. So we get to see a bit more of this side. This area is riddled with craters. There's loads there for you to move your scope across. If you've got a moon filter, put that on one of your eyepieces because it will help dim it down a bit so you can see more details and more craters because it is going to be quite a bright phase when we're looking. But look at the moon's south side because some craters will be tipped into view and we can have a look at them. On the 7th, this evening's full moon rises around 6.30pm, making it a great time to pop out somewhere with a nice clear easterly view. With the sun setting 15 minutes before, it should rise in a lovely sunset. So it'll be an awesome sunset, hopefully. No clouds, fingers crossed. And you'll see this full moon rising up into the sunset. It'll look really good. We move on to the 15th, and the moon has another lunar libration, which is what we said about the southern side tipping into view. It's now going to tilt to the northwestern side. And while it's there, see if you can spot the crater Hermite. So it's right on the moon's edge. It's about 3.91 billion years old. And it's on the southwestern edge. And it's recorded to be the coldest place currently in the solar system. So the southwestern edge of the crater, not the moon. So it's on its northwestern side. But the southwestern edge of this crater that you'll see tip into view is the coldest place in the solar system. So to compare that, Pluto's surface gets down to about minus 220 degrees celsius while hermite reaches 247 so minus 247 degrees celsius the coldest place in the solar system and you can look at it through a telescope on the moon how cool is that moving on to the 17th the moon's going to be slipping out of the way the next few days it's a great time to spot those fainter objects including a rare phenomena called the zodiacal light so that's seen to the western sky just after the sun sets you might spot a very subtle sort of cone of light going up into the sky you might mistake it for some sort of display or maybe a um, sports ground or something like that but it's actually a zodiacal light and it's where the sun's light is scattered by interplanetary dust which is said to be from dying stars as they burn out i think they've said now there might be some mars dust around in the atmosphere as well or in the sky that does it as well helps you're probably gonna need to go to a dark area or as dark an area as you can because it is quite faint and it is quite subtle so it's best seen around february march time when the moon is out of the way each year so right now perfect time go out see if you can spot this really faint sort of white cone of light and this interplanetary stardust being lit up by the sun Moving on to the 20th, today is officially the spring equinox here in the UK, where the centre of the sun crosses the celestial equator at 9.25pm, making today and night, technically, an equal length. So to our ancestors, the Druids, it signified fertility and new beginnings. So it means that spring is pretty much coming, the warmer weather's coming. Moving on to the 22nd, this evening there's a very thin crescent moon. It'll have Jupiter kind of atop of it in the sky. Literally as the sun sets, you'll have maybe half an hour to spot it, an hour at the most. You'll need a good clear western horizon. Venus will be easily seen above left of these two. And the ISS is also passing to the left of them around about 6.47pm. But it's going to be during sunset, so it may be too bright to see it. But you never know. Pop out, have a look at this celestial sort of gathering and see if you can spot the ISS flying across the sky next to them. On to the 23rd, well, 23rd, 24th. These two nights, watch the moon. It's going to kind of creep towards and then past Venus, with the crescent moon being closest to the goddess of beauty on the 24th, giving you an amazing view. So you're going to have Venus and this crescent moon right next to each other, really stunning to see. So 23rd, 24th, with the 24th being the best. 
25th, back to the moon again. So tonight's fuller crescent moon is going to sit just below the stunning naked eye cluster known as the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters. They're even better through binoculars. These bright blue stars are around about 444 light years away and they're sort of like they're the closest to Earth. So the closest cluster to Earth, well, one of the closest, and this will make a really cool photo opportunity. If you've got a camera, even try your iPhone or your Android, see if you can use your smartphone to get a picture. This cool star cluster and the crescent moon right there next to it. It'll be really, really cool to see. Now, early on the 26th, British summertime begins. So the clocks are going to be going forwards at 1am, marking shorter nights and longer days for us astronomers. Hate it. Anyway, it's nice and warm, so I can't really complain. Sitting out on nice warm nights instead of freezing cold nights. I think in December I was sitting out watching meteors at minus 8 degrees with a friend. Madness. At least it's going to be warmer now. Now, 27th, 28th, the moon moves from below right of Mars to just above the left of it over the next two nights. So again, we had this with Venus, now it's going to do it with Mars. So they're going to be the closest together on the 28th, which is a great opportunity to see the red planet using the moon as a signpost. If you haven't found Mars yet, it is in between. There's, there's about three or four other red stars around Mars. So it can be quite tricky to pick out which one is Mars because they're all red. So the moon is going to be a great signpost to then find where Mars is, the god of war, right there. 29th, as the moon moves further left, Mars sits close to the cluster designated M35. So this cluster actually contains two for you to see. So it's in Gemini and it's a large open cluster of bright blue stars. And just to the bottom right of those stars is a really closely packed globular cluster. And they're sort of older, more yellower stars. So it's going to make a really cool contrast of colours. You've got one to the left, which is one of the big open blue stars. And then just to the bottom right, you've got these yellowy older sort of stars and a big sort of glob right there. And they're just kind of off of one of Gemini's twin brothers. One calls Castor, one's called Pollux. If you look at Castor's head, go down the body, there's a leg that sticks out at the top and the cluster's right there for you to see. And Mars is there as well as a signpost for you to find it. So that is everything that's going on this month. Loads to see. Hopefully you might see some meteors and more aurora. So clear skies, guys. And remember, there's a billion worlds in your back garden. I'm Chris Lintot and you're listening to TGP Nominal. Hello everyone, it's Will from Twice Brewed Stargazing and Will Photography. So, if you haven't yet visited me at Twice Brewed Inn in Northumberland Dark Sky Park, then you should. We've got lots of telescopes and a brand new planetarium. Really awesome. And my photography page on Facebook. I do lots of talks on there, lots of sharing interesting things to see, like the Aurora. So I would love a follow if you haven't yet on Will Photography, Will with one L. So I've been asked to start sharing my astronomical objects of the month and so many cool things to see, especially in the month of March. So let's get started with my naked eye visible object of the month, the Spring Triangle. We, of course, have heard of constellations. These are official patterns of stars. There are 88 of them in the night sky. But alongside constellations, there are lots of unofficial patterns, and they're called asterisms. And asterisms are actually some are really well known. You might have heard of the plow, the Big Dipper, Orion's Belt. These are just unofficial patterns. And there are seasonal ones as well, of course. And one of the most famous one in the spring months is the spring triangle. As you can imagine, three bright stars that are very much naked eye visible. We have Arcturus in Butes, the herdsman. In fact, this star is so bright, I believe it's the fourth brightest star overall in the night sky. Then we have Spica in Virgo, and then 
The final star is Regulus, which is the heart of Leo the Lion. Now, this triangle is actually really big. So some astronomers prefer to use Denebola instead of, Re instead of Regulus. So we have Arcturus, Spica, and Denebola. It's pretty much the start of seeing these three bright stars. And over the next few months, it'll definitely be still visible in the skies, moving across to the south. So check it out, the Spring Triangle. My next object is the object visible with binoculars. This is a bit challenging, I'm not going to lie, but as long as you use the star charts properly, you will be able to find it. It is a dwarf planet. Now, of course, we're all aware of the eight planets in our solar system, but Pluto, of course, used to be a major planet until it got demoted to be a dwarf planet. <laughs> And there is a dwarf planet within the asteroid belt called Ceres. This is a fairly big spherical object. And to be honest with you, it could have been a proper planet had it not have been more discoveries of these similar size objects. So Ceres is visible in March and it's actually just on the cusp of naked eye visibility. So with binoculars, it shouldn't be a problem. It is located near Coma Bernices. It's actually within the Spring Triangle. And using the star chart, you should hopefully be able to see it. It's just really cool to be able to say that you could spot a dwarf planet. My next object is very difficult, but it's definitely worth trying. The telescope object of the month is Sirius. Why so serious? Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky. And probably surprised to say my telescope object is Sirius. Well, actually, it's Sirius B that I want you to see. You see, Sirius is actually a double star, a binary star, not just one, but two. So it's split into Sirius A and Sirius B. Sirius B is very difficult to spot because it's very faint. In fact, I believe Sirius A is about 50,000 times brighter than Sirius B. And when we see it with the naked eye, it is the main star. However, in its 53-year orbit around Sirius, we can, at times, see it when it's furthest from the main star. And guess what? This year is the year. This year is the best year since 53 years ago. So we've got to give it a go. But not only this, March will be one of the last months where we can see Sirius relatively high in the sky because Sirius is a winter and early spring constellation. It will literally be under the horizon before long. So now is the time to give it a go. So what do you have to do? You can't miss Sirius, such a bright star. Follow the belt stars of Orion to the left, take it down to the very bright star. Get a relatively powerful eyepiece on a minimum, I would say, six inch aperture telescope. Now, the guide is four inches, but I think six inches, okay, just to be safe. Six inches with a decent eyepiece, I would say minimum 10 mil, okay? And get it on Sirius and you should see, hopefully, a little dot next to Sirius. That is Sirius B. Honestly, folks, give it a go. I would love to hear success stories of seeing this. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Well, that's it, folks, for this month. Next month, very excited to share with you my objects for April. But for now, just remember to keep looking up 
You never know what you're going to see. Take care. Don't forget that you can access more in-depth versions of both the Sky Guide and the Objects of the Month with diagrams, videos and links for more information in the show notes, which can be found on the dedicated page for this episode. Just click on the little button at the bottom of the page that says Explore This Episode. Now, occasionally we have guests on the show from the world of astronomy, so we ask them if they would like to submit their favourite celestial body. Now, we have uploaded some of them to our YouTube channel in an Objects of the Month playlist so i'll put a link to that in the show notes but at the top of any of our pages there is a link to our youtube channel so go check them out right we're going to take another short break and when we come back i think it's time for a bit of news hi i'm matt damon i play astronaut mark watney in the martian in the story my character is accidentally stranded on mars Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. In the past, this section of the show was used for space news, but we've decided to mix it up a bit with space, science, tech, and sci-fi news. Although it is going to be mostly space news this month, however, we are going to start off the month with this. In the UK, we are pretty proud of our computing heritage from Charles Babbage back in the 1800s to Sir Tim Berners-Lee. And there are many computing institutions with artifacts from all around the world, not just UK involvements. Now, I've been following the lead up to a launch of a new venture called the Northwest Computer Museum based in Lee in Greater Manchester. They have an awesome collection of vintage computers and video game consoles from the 1970s onwards. They have arcade games, cabinets, and they have an education suite where they host workshops where you can learn programming languages and PCB-level electronic repairs. They are a charitable organisation, and any money made from their events and things gets ploughed back into the museum. Now, I'd love to visit the Northwest Computer Museum, but it's a bit of a trek for me, so I'll try and arrange a virtual meet-up with the organisers. However, there are some computer institutions nearer to me that I might be able to get involved with. Firstly, there's the National Museum of Computing, which is housed at the world-famous Bletchley Park, once the top secret home of the World War II codebreakers. And then we have the Centre for Computing History, which is based in the city where the British personal computing started, Cambridge. 
If you really want to learn a little bit about British computing, there is a really good drama documentary called Micromen, which is available on YouTube, which I'll put a link to it in the show notes. There's also a 10th anniversary video from the Centre for Computing History, which actually has the real people from the Micromen, not the actors that played them, the actual real guys that started the home computing bug in the UK. Nice. What do you got there, John? Wish I could say I had something retro game related. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun. Although I did see an article, I didn't read too much into it. Apparently, some guy is working on building a completely functional Commodore 64 using modern components. But the reason why they phrase it that way is they're actually still going to use the various chips that the Commodore 64 used, but they're going to try to get new chips to perform the same kind of function that aren't still available anymore. Right. So it's not like it's going to be an emulator. They still want it to be the actual Commodore 64 using modern chipsets and so forth. It sounds remarkably like what they did with the ZX Spectrum Next, which is a modern version of the original Spectrum. They've upped the ante on it a little bit. The the memory on it is advanced. You don't get the color clash that you used to get on the Spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's got SD card slots in it. Um, it's got HDMI capability on it. So it, yeah, it has been modernized a lot because people are finding it very difficult to attach their uh, original Spectrum to modern televisions. <laughs> You can get adapter boxes to HDMI super cheap. Mm-hmm. I've got like one or two of them here that convert RCA audio and video to HDMI. I mean, where you're going to run into the problem is the video quality, because you're not going to get the scan lines and so forth. You're not going to get the exact same experience. The original Spectrum was totally through RF. Oh, so it had that kind of box. Yeah. There's got to be something out there. Mm, I think there are companies that do make converters but they're not cheap. (laughs) Really? See, now I'm curious. The problem people are having is you can plug it into the aerial socket of a a modern-day TV. Right. But it's not tuning. It's not finding the frequency. Well, over here it was channel 3. It was always channel 3 over here. Oh, that might have been the conversion from analog to digital. That's probably what's killing it. I see where you're going. Yeah... Huh, I don't know. I never really thought about that. Cause I remember the old Atari 2600 had that kind of connector. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same as the Spectrum, yeah. Because that's, that's why the Spectrum was the cheapest of the home computers, because you didn't need a monitor for it. Right, and then you just plug it into a TV and set it to channel 3, over here anyway, mm-hmm. and off you go. But there is no channel 3 because there's no more there's no more analog signals. Mmm. Interesting. I yeah. don't have an answer to that one. There's got to be some retro, you know, some retro boards that can talk about that. I would have thought so, yeah. That's worth having to look into. So, if any of you guys out there know about this kind of stuff, <laughs> get in touch. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. And then we can let other people know if they're having similar problems. After a string of delays, India's most ambitious mission is slowly finding its feet again. On the 7th of February, ISRO, India's National Space Agency, resumed a series of tests needed to perfect procedures and hardware for its, now let me get this right, its Gagangnan Human Spaceflight Program. 
the agency collaborated with the Indian Navy to recover a mock crew module from an enclosed pool. It said in a press release, The tests were being carried out at the Water Survival Test Facility, a location owned by the Indian Navy in Kochi, which is a city in southwest India. The state-of-the-art facility simulates different sea state conditions, environmental conditions and day-stroke-night conditions, according to ISRO. ISRO has been testing the hardware that will fly astronauts on their Gaganyan missions. The agency validated the program's launch vehicle in 2014 and its launch abort and crew escape systems in 2018. But then coronavirus kicked in... (laughs) and halted astronaut training, adding to the program's setbacks. Now, ISRO slowly bounced back in 2021 with tests of engines, solid rocket boosters and parachutes. Kochi is part of the coastal state of Kerala, which touches the Bay of Bengal and offers an open sea where the agency will likely test its crew modules in the next coming months. ISRO said that these tests were also to train the recovery teams and flight crew who were working in coordination during re-entry and landing to wrap up a week-long Gaganyan orbital mission. Before sending humans into space, ISRO will conduct two uncrewed flights to low Earth orbit, and then at least one of those will carry a humanoid robot as payload, the agency has said in the past. These flights intend to validate the mission's technology and launch vehicle, and are scheduled to occur in late 2023 and the first half of 2024. So things are getting really interesting for the Indian Space Agency. Well, it happened once, it happened again. For the second time in two months, a Russian spacecraft docked at the ISS has sprung a leak. Mission controllers in Moscow have noticed a depressurization, as they're calling it, in the robotic Progress 82 cargo craft. So, once again, the depressurization occurred within the vehicle's coolant system. So they said that the reason for the loss of coolant in the Progress 82 spacecraft is being investigated. The hatches between Progress 82 and the station are open, and temperatures and pressure aboard the station are normal. The crew, which has uh, been informed of the cooling loop leak, is in no danger and is continuing with normal space station operations. So Progress 82 arrived on October 28th of 2022, was supposed to depart on February 17th, but now they don't know... Of course, by the time this podcast goes through, we'll probably have more information. Progress vehicles are actually designed to burn up in the atmosphere when their mission is over, so obviously engineers won't be able to do any examination of it. Depressurization was noticed on the same day that Progress 83 arrived, and Progress 83 so far is unaffected. But, obviously, this comes right after the MS-22 Soyuz had that big coolant leak that I'm pretty sure we've all seen videos of it. It was a pretty spectacular leak. And uh, apparently that was caused by a micrometeoroid strike, but now obviously that's being brought into question since we have a second coolant leak. So now that vehicle, the MS-22, is unfit to carry astronauts, uh, except in the case of an emergency on board the ISS. So... Roscosmos plans to launch another Soyuz, MS-23, which will be uncrewed. Now, that is the current plan, except that they've decided to delay that launch because of now this this second coolant leak has popped up. So they said that it was supposed to be 
scheduled uh, for late February 19th, and now it will be delayed until early March. So they said the delay will give investigators time to study the coolant link in the MS-21 that was reported on February 11th because of what happened with the MS-22 back in December. So again, you know, Roscosmos said that the coolant leak was actually from a micrometeoroid impact, which NASA accepted. Uh, now, because we have two of the same kind of leak, there's now doubts as to whether that was actually a micrometeoroid. So who knows what's going to happen. Um, I mean, they have to get something up there, and I know that there's been talk about using SpaceX to get something up there to bring the crew home that would have come back. So we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. But yeah, two Soyuz vessels and two coolant leaks. Do you remember the name Jared Isaacman? No. Now, he's the guy that was funding and was the commander of the Inspiration Four civilian mission. Remember that on SpaceX? They had four civilians that went up in, in a SpaceX capsule and they had kind of like a window in the top of it so that they could have a look out. Yeah, vaguely. They were raising money for the St. Jude's Children's Hospital as part of the mission. Now, he's funding a new private space program called Polaris. The missions will be carried out using SpaceX technology with the rockets, crewed spacecraft and spacesuits all supplied by SpaceX. Now, it does seem to me that these missions are kind of like being guinea pigs for SpaceX. <laughs> there are several purposes for each of these missions, including furthering research on human health in spaceflight, demonstrating SpaceX technology such as Starlink laser-based communications and raising funds for charitable concerns. The missions will attempt to set a number of space milestones, including the highest crewed Earth orbit and the first ever commercial spacewalk. It will also debut SpaceX's extravehicular spacesuit. So they've got these new spacesuits for doing spacewalks. So they're using the people <laughs> on these missions to trial them for them. I mean, okay, but still, why don't you say it's SpaceX? I don't get it. The Polaris program will consist of three missions in total. They are as follows. The Polaris Dawn, which is the first of the three planned missions under the Polaris program. As of February 2023, the mission was estimated to take place no earlier than March 2023, after pushback from its initial launch estimate of the fourth quarter of 2022. The mission will involve a crew of four launching in a SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule on a Falcon 9 rocket. The crew will then spend up to five days in Earth orbit, during which time they will attempt to reach an altitude 870 miles, or 1400 kilometers, higher than any previous SpaceX Dragon mission. The Polaris Dawn will also aim to achieve the highest Earth orbit ever flown during a crewed mission, above 853 miles, or 1373 kilometers which is the crewed altitude record set by the Gemini 11 mission. The Polaris Dawn will also attempt the first commercial spacewalk using spacesuits designed by SpaceX. According to the mission website, this will help SpaceX develop and scale the suit for future uses. So as I say, pretty much guinea pigs for SpaceX. Mm -hmm. yeah. The mission will also involve 38 research experiments that will help scientists understand more about how space travel affects the human body. Such experiments include the use of ultrasound to measure changes to eye structure and microgravity. 
and determine how the body processes common pharmaceuticals in orbit. Since the crew will pass through the Earth's Van Allen radiation belt, Polaris Dawn is also set to provide data on the impacts of space radiation on human health, which could be useful for future long-distance space missions. The crew will consist of the mission commander, which is Jared Isaacman, the pilot will be Scott Poteet, and the specialists will be Sarah Gills and medical officer Anna Menon. As of February 2023, little is known about the second planned Polaris program mission, including the date, the name, the purpose, or the launch vehicle. The third mission is set to be using SpaceX's Starship vehicle, and the mission three will be the first crewed Starship flight to once again guinea pigs for SpaceX. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a bizarre one, that. But like you say, why are they not going under the name of SpaceX? Yeah. It's not as though it's like another company. They've basically bought seats on a yeah. SpaceX vehicle. I don't know. Maybe there are legal reasons. I, I have no idea. Well, as long as we're talking about SpaceX, SpaceX is going to launch the first Saudi woman to space on a private AX2 mission. So on February 12th, the Saudi government and Axiom Space announced the final two members of the four-person AX2 mission to the ISS, which is scheduled to launch atop a Falcon 9 no earlier than May. So they are, forgive me if I get these wrong, Rayana Barnawi and Ali Al-Karni, members of the inaugural Saudi astronaut class. So they'll become the first Saudi Arabians to travel to the ISS and just the second and third people from the kingdom ever to reach space. Plus, Barnawi will be the first Saudi woman to be going to space. So AX2 will be using SpaceX hardware and will be led by former NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson, who has spent more time in space at 665 days than any other woman or American and is now a consultant for Axiom. So uh, Barnawi and Ali Alkarni will be mission specialists. So the only Saudi citizen to reach space to date has been Sultan bin Salman al Saud, who flew on the week-long STS-51G mission for Discovery in 1985. So you figure it's been almost 40 years since someone else from Saudi Arabia has gone to space. So al Saud was the first Arab, the first Muslim, and the first member of a royal family to go to orbit. I mean, it's a pretty big step for them because... As we know, uh, women in Saudi Arabia don't have the same rights as men, and... Uh, You're being very delicate. Yeah. <laughs> and it's difficult to say what you want to say. <laughs> yes, it is. So this is a really big step forward. But the thing is, so you've got a man and a woman going up. Is that because she has to have a chaperone? Oh, dear. Yeah, that was my first thought. Didn't even think about it from that perspective. But yeah, now that you mention it, that might not necessarily be out of the question. But it's pretty sad when that was the first thought that came to your mind. Yeah, I know. But this is unfortunately how things are in a lot of those countries right. out there. I might be wrong. Voyages of TGP Nominal, 
on its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news. To explore the world of sci-fi, comic-con, and gaming. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Chris Hadfield, the retired Canadian astronaut, has visited Buckingham Palace to meet King Charles III for a consultation regarding efforts to encourage sustainability in space, according to the official Royal Family Twitter account. What a pleasure and a privilege to have been asked to advise and assist and to make the king laugh, Hadfield wrote, of the experience on his Twitter page, alongside a picture showing His Majesty looking amused. Now, I've had a look at that picture, and it looks like King Charles is saying to Chris Hadfield, pull my finger. <laughs> <laughs> that's God, what it looks that's wrong. But that's what it looks like. It's all about the angle. <laughs> Now, the specifics of the conversation has not yet been shared, but sustainability could refer to dealing with problems such as space debris, uh, the light pollution affecting our night skies, or overall environmental concerns raised by rocket launches. Now, King Charles is a noted environmentalist, particularly seeking to address problems like climate change. And as we know, King Charles's son, William, the Prince of Wales, founded the Earthshot Prize, which is a global environmental incentive in 2020 to discover, accelerate and scale groundbreaking eco-solutions to repair and regenerate the planet. And as we featured in the podcast previously, he's not a fan of space flight. He was basically saying, you know, it's causing a lot of the problems, um, yet a lot of the satellites and things that we're putting into space are helping with early warning systems for environmental problems. So it'll be interesting to find out what that consultation was all about. I'll put a picture on the show notes so you can have a look at it, but yeah, it's, it's quite a funny picture. I pull my finger is not the first thing I would ask Chris Hadfield, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> A mysterious Russian satellite broke apart, creating a cloud of debris that could linger quite a while. So it was the Cosmos 2499 spacecraft disintegrated on the night of January 3rd, according to the U.S. Space Space Force, Force. Force. Uh, the 18th Space Defense Squadron, which tracks human-made objects in orbit. Apparently, the breakup generated at least 85 pieces of trackable debris. Now, that's trackable. Who knows how many small fragments it, it created that can't be tracked. So the cloud is orbiting at 726 miles or roughly 1,170 kilometers above Earth. So it will take roughly a century or more for atmosphere drag to bring that material down. So there's no speculation right now about the cause of the breakup, but that's not the only mystery about this. Apparently, that satellite launched into orbit on uh, May of 2014 on top of a Russian rocket vehicle. I've never heard of that one. R-O-C-K-O-T. Have you ever heard of that? I can't say I have, actually, no. We're obviously familiar with Soyuz, but I've never heard of a rocket vehicle, along with three military communication satellites. But this satellite was not officially on the launch manifest, so it was launched in secret. So satellite trackers initially cataloged it as a piece of debris, but then they noticed that it started to make maneuvers. So by the end of October of 2014, it was classified as a payload instead of a fragment. 
you know, what what was this thing all about? What they did notice was that it got within less than a mile off of the actual main body of the rocket that went up, but then it backed off, and then it made an even closer approach to the rocket body. Again, there's still speculation as to what was going on, but apparently they're guessing that Cosmos 2499 and another one called Cosmos 2491 were testing technology that could allow spacecraft to chase down and even disable other satellites. So we have no idea what that one was all about. Obviously, Russia's being very tight-lipped. But regardless, whatever happened to that satellite, that means that there's even more debris that's going around the planet that they can detect. So according to ESA, uh, there are currently about 36,500 pieces of space junk that are at least four inches wide. And those obviously are just the ones that are big enough to be tracked. Right now, they're estimating that there are probably more than 130 million objects in space that are at least one millimeter across. And this one just added more to it. Wow. That is really weird. Uh-huh. I mean, when you were mentioning about the, the, the was it Rockot? Yeah. Rock, rock R-O-C-K-O-T. I'd never heard of that. They do have other rockets apart from the Soyuz. I mean, there's... Yeah. Um, uh, Proton, I think, is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't get used that often because of the fact that the Soyuz is such a workhorse. Let me see what I can find on it. Uh, yeah, okay, so it was a Russian space launch vehicle capable of launching a payload of almost 2,000 kilograms into space. Wow, apparently there were 34 launches, of which 31 were successful. So the first flight was in 1990, last flight was in 2019. I don't recall ever hearing about this thing. And I should have seen that because, obviously, um, on TGP Nominal, we've got our our launch pad section on the webpage. I should have seen that when I was um, updating each month. Huh. Doesn't ring bells with me at all. No, it doesn't. And it's just a very simple rocket. Looks like it's the kind that might have a portable launcher or or something close to a portable launch vehicle. Uh, Okay, so it can be launched from anywhere. Maybe. It doesn't sound familiar at all. Well, today we learned something new, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Now, before we go into another story, well, this kind of is a story, but isn't. Did you see those pictures of the sample tubes collected by the Perseverance rover? Uh, Yeah, I I saw them and how they look like little lightsabers. Yeah, that's so weird. I was was looking at it going, that looks like a lightsaber on Mars. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saw all about those tubes. The only thing that stinks about those tubes is that they're, they're looking at the earliest... 2033 to get them back here. It's like, oh, come on, man. You're pushing the point where I might not be here anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see this. You never know. Things might advance. You never know. I was going to say there was a story about the the helicopter on Mars. Uh Earlier in, in February, it made its 42nd flight. And I thought, that's fantastic. And then I looked at it again today. It's made another flight today. So 43. They've been averaging once a week lately. It's quite amazing. When you look at the, the flight log, 
which if you go on to the TGP Nominal website and you look at the Launchpad Extra section, there is a section there all about the helicopter and it will take you to a link with all the different launches of the helicopter so you can see how many flights it's done and what it did and how far it travelled and there's pictures of what it saw and all that kind of thing. NASA needs to do more of this. Artemis just annoys the hell out of me. You know, for all the money that we spent, how long did it take for that thing to get to the moon and come back? Wasn't it like 21 days? Uh, yeah, about that. Meanwhile, the Saturn V got men to the moon in three days. Mm-hmm. But this stuff, the rovers and the helicopters, this is what NASA should be doing. That Ingenuity helicopter was supposed to go for five flights. Yeah. And it's now in its 40s. This is the stuff they're really good at. I mean, this is something we've been saying for a while, that you've got enough outlets there now to produce rockets that will get you to the moon. Okay, you've got your Orion capsule. That's fine. But we know the Orion capsule can fit on other rockets. Yeah. It would be cheaper in the long run for NASA to use somebody else's rocket and attach their capsule to the top, and away you go. Yep. Did you hear that Ingenuity is so successful that they recently changed their plans that future rovers are going to have two helicopters included with it Mm -hmm. instead of just whatever they were going to do? It's almost as though now it's like, hey, you know what? The helicopters have been working. Let's just include them now. It doesn't take a lot of space. It doesn't. And I was wondering about stuff like, could those helicopters potentially be used to blow dust off solar panels? I'd never thought of that. Ah. Obviously, the atmosphere is not nearly as dense. The blades have to go significantly faster. But they still have to shoot the air down to produce thrust. Mm -hmm. You know, because we've lost rovers to having dust on the solar panels. So why not use these things to blow dust off the solar panels? Yeah, that's definitely something worth considering. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, NASA, if you're listening, there's an idea for you. Of course, they've probably already thought about that. But they probably have now that things are successful anyway. (laughs) Yeah. The company that was called Sierra Nevada, which is now called Sierra Space, has successfully finished its third module test for the Blue Origin-led Orbital Reef Private Space Complex for NASA. Now, basically, this module is inflatable, so they want to make a a completely inflatable space station. Now, we know that these inflatable modules work because they've had one fitted to the side of the International Space Station for a little while. And when these inflatable things get into space, they pretty much go rock hard. It's not like a bouncy thing, which you would imagine something inflatable would be. Once it gets out of our atmosphere, it goes rock hard. So this test, (laughs) I love the way they've... Sierra Space has done a trio of explosive tests. (laughs) That doesn't sound good, actually. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) Basically, all they did was they increased the air pressure in this module, and it's supposed to maintain air pressure for at least 100 hours. So they increased the pressure, kept increasing it, until it went to 150 hours, and then it just... Mm. Basically. So they took it over what it's supposed to take. Right which proved that it can withstand a lot more than it should be able to to take. So NASA are happy with the results of that. There is videos of it exploding. (laughs) Nice. 
I'm going to have to look that up and put them in the show notes. Now, all the tests were performed at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, in the same zone where NASA tested the rockets for the Apollo moon program in the 60s and 70s. So Mm. it's got a lot of heritage there where they actually did the tests. I bet that sounded loud when that happened. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when a balloon goes, it makes a big bang. So imagine something of that size exploding. Wow. (laughs) Just stick a pin in it. (laughs) Yeah. It's time for a break, but don't go anywhere because we have a special guest on the show. Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in there. My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. Has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. look back at the earth and watch it get smaller oh it was beautiful apollo 11 this is houston i've got the morning news here if you're interested over go ahead houston an irishman has won the world porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal i'd like to enter aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time he's on his 19th bowl roger Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go Houston here, go for landing, over. I do the go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same type, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy it down, Eagle. Beautiful view. Magnificent The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. If you're a regular listener, you might recall John and I virtually inducting Kate Arkless Gray, a.k.a. Space Kate, onto our honorary crew member wall. So not only did we induct her onto the honorary crew member wall, we really had a fun chat with her, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Yep, that was fun. So here is Kate talking about her time in America during the Artemis 1 launch. I was there for the not launch, the second not launch. I then had to come home, do some actual work, and then I thought, I can't not be there. So the first time I was I was there, a group of us had got together, just randomly space fans, and, and we all had this just common desire to see the rocket fly, and, and we got on very well. And where I was watching from, I had to be dropped there quite early in the morning for the first attempt, because my friend that I was staying with actually was working in the launch control centre, so he had to go on base. 
but I can't drive. So he dropped me just outside the Space Force base because there's a nice little secret viewing spot there. But it was about four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I had, I don't know how many hours to kill until the rocket was actually supposed to launch. And I chatted to a few people around me, but then they were a bit quiet. And I could hear some people laughing a bit further down. So I went and chatted to them. And one of them was this guy who originally is English, lives in New York, runs a PR company and was so gutted that he'd never seen a space shuttle launch that he had come down to to see the Artemis launch. But then the next day had to fly to Berlin for a a product launch for one of the companies he worked for. So when it didn't go, he was immediately saying, well, I don't know, should I stay? No, I wonder if I could come back in time. The second launch attempt was on the fr- like the Friday, but they moved that to the Saturday. And the next thing I know, I had a text saying, I'm skipping the launch party and I'm flying back from Berlin. I'll be there. And then it didn't launch again. So I was wondering, will I see him again this time? Yep, he was back in town, ready for this. And finally, we all got to see it launch. And I- I'm not sure any of us quite believed that it was going to go. You know, when they sent in the red team to go and tighten up some bolts and you're just thinking, oh my goodness, this is the most powerful rocket ever. It's completely fueled. And you're going to send these three guys out there with a spanner. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So, you know, my heart was in my mouth. I actually have a friend who her husband works on the pad. And I was quickly texting her. I was like, oh my gosh, it's not Andy, is it? And it wasn't, but I was still nervous. Anyway, we got through all of that drama. Then we hear that the range control is no-go because they had a faulty Ethernet switch. And you're thinking, my goodness, like, it's just not going to go, is it? (laughs) But yeah, somebody was like, you know, running around to Best Buy and fixing that. I don't don't know. In the the nick of time, they, they got that done, but it was a bit dramatic. It was. The launch was obviously dramatic and spectacular. Yeah. Really great. Yeah, really great. Even though I wasn't as close, I think I was 11.2 miles away where I was watching, but with a body of water in front of me and the, you know, all the reflections, it was a night launch and just absolutely lit up the whole sky. And you got the big trail and the noise and, and we could see it, you know, because of the path that it was taking, it sort of went up and then over. You could still see it, could still see it, could still see it. Could still see it. Wow. The, the, the kind of smoke trail it left that was just then lit up by the moon. And you're just thinking, this is, it's really happening. If you were at, like actually on base, like my friend was at the launch control center. Once it looked like it was actually going, you know, quickly ran out onto the stairs. And he said his video was terrible because he he was shaking so much because of the noise. He said it absolutely blew shuttle out of the water. And and like, I listened to the audio from his video, and there's this other noise, and it's all of the panels, the metal panels on the building, just kind of vibrating and kind of making this mad noise. It was spectacular, and we were very, very happy to see it go. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been so long in, in coming that you did begin to wonder if it's actually going to happen. I booked my tickets for the second attempt, and I, I looked at all of the dates that they could go, and I thought about, you know, some of the issues they'd had. I mean, hydrogen leaks are yeah, kind of serious. And of course, they had to roll it back into the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building, because there was a hurricane coming through, and I was delayed by a day because there was another hurricane, but the rocket was on the pad and had to withstand, you know, winds of up to 100 miles an hour, I think, they were registering. But apparently that was that was okay. 
but there was still you know I thought no come on they'll they'll want to check it out they probably you know they'll do a countdown to the last minute or two maybe I don't think it's going to fly so I booked my ticket to stay there for two weeks thinking that perhaps it was going to need one of the, the later windows but uh no, everybody got their Thanksgiving off. I know my friend was very happy that uh, this thing had finally flown and she got her husband back so they could have some family time. Um, yeah, a lot of people have been working very, very hard on this mission. So you got to see two launches in that span because you, you got to see one of the Falcon launches as well. Yeah, I actually saw one, two... I saw five launches. Oh, wow. <laughs> in my two trips. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is also, this is crazy because when I first went out to Florida to see a shuttle launch, that was pretty much the only launch that was happening at, happening at that time. I did go back because they had the Falcon 9, like the original orbital test of the um, Dragon capsule, I think. And that was way back in, what, 2010? Mm-hmm. Can't believe time has flown and so many rockets. But yeah, nowadays, it's just like one a week for SpaceX. So I, I had never seen a night launch and arrived in Florida for the first launch attempts uh, just in time to for my friend to collect me, take me to a place called the Space Bar, very nice, where I had a shuttle-themed cocktail and uh, stood on a balcony overlooking the Air Force Base and Kennedy Space Center and, yep, there was a nice night launch for us. And then a week later, there was another one just before I went home. And then, yep, the uh, SpaceX managed to bookend my trip again this time. So I had a day launch and then another night launch. So yeah, I, I had never seen a night launch and now I've seen four. <laughs> I don't know if you've come across launch pins on Twitter, but he's got a really nice range of space pins that are all like enamel pins. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, has now sort of branched out into a bit of jewelry. And I won a competition before the first Artemis launch attempt because I, I saw the pin and thought, oh, that's lovely. And he was running a competition. Anyone who retweeted could win the pin. And I never win anything, but eh, retweet it. And it turned out I won. Nice. But I was flying to America and I thought, there's no point you posting it to me here in London. Maybe you could post it to my friend that I'm staying with. But obviously I didn't want to send my friend's information over Twitter. So I said, do you have an email address? Can I? So I emailed. And the next thing I know, I got a message back on Twitter saying, did you go to Cambridge in 1998? I was like, eh? Yes. And then this is Matthew Horn. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is somebody I went to university with. He was in my year at university in 1998, has now moved to the US. I had no idea he was a space fan. I had no idea at all when I won this. And he didn't know it was me either. He just saw my name on the email and thought, oh, wait, there can't be that many people with a name like that. So I, I actually met up with him after, what, 20 something years. Wow. I met up with him on this second trip to, to Florida and, and he very kindly gifted me the little dragon capsules and they're really cool. Yeah, highly recommend. It's a very nice SLS pin as well. Yeah, look at that right now. Very nice. And I don't get commission. <laughs> it's not not a hashtag ad. I just like the stuff. It's just his side hobby. Terribly, I can't remember what his actual day job is now. I just focus on the space stuff. Um, but yeah, he loves space, so he just made it his hobby. Cool. Very cool. Now, she was pretty lucky with that. I mean, I know she had to go back twice. <laughs> but the fact that she got to see, was it five launches in total? Yeah, that's crazy. I'm not going to deny it. Super jealous. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, she does get to travel about a bit and meeting some fantastic people on her journeys. So then we had a chat about UK rocket launches. 
So we mentioned the, the Virgin Orbit before it actually took place, obviously. Um, Saxo Vord, which is up in Scotland, where they're going to do proper rocket launches. And we also mentioned Rocket Lab and how they have evolved over the last few years. And now you're getting your own launch complex up over in your area. Well, which one are you talking about? Because there are a few places that have got ambitions for rockets, and there's a... I don't know whether we were correct to call one of them a launch site exactly. Um, no. A plane-taking-off site with a rocket that then launches... Eh, I am a pedant. I'm sorry, UK Space Agency. I know that you're very excited to, to be launching the first satellite from UK soil. You're not exactly. No, I'm, I'm waiting for Saxovord to uh, do the proper launches there because I believe they're getting some people from Rocket Lab to come over because it's a similar kind of setup as they've got in New Zealand. And Rocket Lab have done some amazing stuff, haven't they? I remember being yeah, a bit sceptical of them back in, what, 2015, 16? I was thinking, oh, you know, there's not that much about them. And, and I was trying to see if they were actually going to be able to launch in New Zealand and I did a bit of research because I thought does New Zealand even have a space licensing law or regulation and as I was looking into it they had literally just put it into place like a month before and I was like oh okay maybe they are serious and yeah they were and they've they've done really well really really pleased for them i found it quite weird with peter beck because he wasn't actually convinced that they were going to be able to do what they did and he basically said if it happens i'll eat my hat and (laughs) he he basically had to blend up his hat and he made a video of him actually eating it that's great though i mean (laughs) one to have that humility in the first place and then two you know to go through with it i can think of maybe you know another rocket boss who could perhaps have done with some of the same humility but (laughs) i can't think of who you might be talking about (laughs) there we were discussing the the new venture that uh, rocket lab's got with without having the fall away fairings they're just going to open up and whatever's just going to come out the front of it and then the fairings are going to close back up again and land and we were thinking that's like something out of you know some james bond villain thing and that whole thing about trying to catch the the rocket with the hook on the bottom of a helicopter yeah it's one of those things it's on the line of madness or genius yeah there is a fine line <laughs> well then there's also that one uh, low orbit place that's going to be doing it with a centrifuge apparently they had a semi-successful test launch yeah okay color me skeptical on that as well i got told off by one of the mars one participants who was very upset that i wasn't supporting mars one and they, they said it isn't it your job to you know be promoting space flight if that's what you say what you do and i was like well yeah but i'm allowed to ask questions and if it's nonsense it's actually my job to maybe point it out so that people don't get suckered oops yeah i think i was at space up europe yeah i think it was the first space up europe and the the guy who founded uh, mars one was there talking about it and i i just had so many questions about it because i mean why do people watch big brother well it's because you put all those characters in a house and you keep the really irritating characters who annoy each other because it makes good television and if they're not really being prickly enough you set them a ridiculous challenge or you know stop half of them having food like you're doing i'm a celebrity get me out of here you you pit people against each other and you just could not do that for this mission so there was absolutely no way that they were going to get an interesting tv show out of it and if that was the only way they were going to get the budget for the mission which it was there was no way it was going to happen yeah maybe i'm just a massive cynic 
I was not a fan of that project. Did you ever see the TV show called Space Cadets? Is that the one where they pretended to send them to space? Yeah. I didn't see it, but I did hear stuff about it. Oh, it's so good. It's so well, so bad, it's good. When they were teaching about space and constellations and nebula and all this kind of thing, they were making notes and they were believing everything that was being thrown at them. And when they were being told that there's things up there called the hazelnut cluster... Uh, <laughs> some pretty strange named things out in space yeah the scientists you know we i remember when i was doing my genetics degree and we were learning about the sonic hedgehog gene <laughs> which i think they may have had had to actually rename because it it turned out that it was responsible for some rare but debilitating disease and the patients who had it and then found they had this sonic hedgehog thing didn't really appreciate the joke whoops they ran tests on these, these people beforehand so that they could whittle down how many people were going on this so-called mission in a space shuttle. Basically, they were looking for anyone that was gullible. That's what they were looking for. <laughs> so they whittled down the team to six people and they got a team of people from Hollywood to recreate a space shuttle on a gimbal. Oh, they could have just gone to the, um, the space shuttle launch experience at Kennedy Visitor Centre visitor complex it's pretty good that <laughs> they got these people to get on a plane they took away their watches and everything so they had no idea what time was they blacked out all the windows and just circled around a few times and they landed at a disused airbase which was supposed to be star city and they got oh all these russian actors in and they actually did a recce over in russia so they could get signs and sockets and everything to make it look like it was in Russia. And when they got there, there was all these guys in, you know, the big furry hats and guard dogs and everything, and really scary, and took their passports off them and all this kind of stuff. And they really believed that they were in Russia. Presumably they would be flying on the Buran then, rather than the space shuttle. Yeah. Not that the participants probably would have even heard of... Well, probably either. <laughs> no. And they were on this shuttle what they thought was a shuttle and nobody ever thought well hang on a minute gravity um yeah what's going on with that uh, and they yeah, had it's okay because somebody switched the gravity on you know that's how it works they, they kind of made out that they've got this gravity generator thing that they had on on board and we started um, in space nights just go install the gravity net so you know it, it's all good <laughs> I, I was actually asked in a radio interview once if that's how they train if there is somewhere on earth where they can just turn off gravity and that's how they train the astronauts and I was like mm, no <laughs> I'm afraid not also somebody's trolling me on, on uh, social media at the moment because they didn't appreciate my video of a, a SpaceX launch admittedly not a great video I just did it on my phone but now he's decided that space doesn't exist and neither does gravity and, and um, yeah he wants me to prove it I've just bitten my tongue before I said well if you'd like to step off a tall building yeah. <laughs> another uh, honorary crew member Will Photography he's an astronomer at uh, the twice brewed stargazing facility up in Northumberland and uh, he does live moon sessions where he points his telescope at the moon and talks to people about different craters and stuff and he gets a lot of trolls on his live feeds mm. he's learned to switch off from them now um, but yeah if you ever get a chance to go up to twice brewed it's, it's really good you've got a brewery or a microbrewery with stargazing 
plus a hotel, and they've just built a planetarium on the side of it as Ooh, well. That sounds great. Do they have space-themed beer? I had some Artemis Ale while oh. I was in America, and in fact, actually, it was on the launch day. It was the day it launched. I had the the launch day IPA. It was very good. They have got a stargazing beer. It's actually called Lunar Beer. And being an astronomer and an astrophotographer as well, Will actually did all the photos for the, what ended up on the on the product. So that was, oh, that's cool. I was introduced to Will through a charity that we have dealings with, which is UK Astronomy, which um, going from strength to strength. I mean, they've just bought themselves an inflatable planetarium so they can take it to schools and stuff like that so whenever they're doing stargazing and the weather's not too great which more often than not in the uk um they can still do stargazing to a certain degree (laughs) those are really cool i i remember going into one of those at my school and i have seen them i think they brought one to the courtyard outside the royal astronomical society just a couple of years ago oh wow um yeah it was really cool so yeah, the UK rocket launches. Um, unfortunately, we had a bit of a mishap <laughs> with the the one that everyone was going on about. It was the first one from UK soil. Technically, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it was stuck to a bottom of a plane. It hovered around the uh, Irish Sea for a little while. Just went round and round and round. Went to a certain height. Dropped the rocket. And then it disappeared over the Canary Islands, <laughs> basically. Uh, I'm not going to say anything. All I'm going to say here is Beagle 2. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, dear. They can't understand why it didn't happen. Well, they've had five launches of this vehicle. Four of them were in the Mojave Desert. The fifth one was off the coast of Cornwall in January, and the temperature is slightly different. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's where you may have had a little problem. I think if they'd have tried it later in the year, it might have been a bit different. But also later in the year, we do have launches from Saxovord, and that's actually going to be a vertical launch. So in my eyes, that's going to be the first launch from UK soil. Yeah. So then we chatted a little bit about space memorabilia. Richard Garriott actually owns one of the old Soviet rovers that are on the moon. He bought it at an auction, even though he's never actually seen his property. Wow. He wants somebody to go and find it on the moon so that they can take a photograph with it so he can actually see his property. Do you think they threw in a warranty? I don't know. (laughs) If it's like a rover, you could be an amazing car rental. Yeah, if it still works. That'd be amazing if it actually still runs. When, when I heard that, it didn't really surprise me with Richard because, I mean, his house is like a... Well, which house? The three of them are like museums of space exploration stuff. He's got a Sputnik 2, uh, which was given to his dad um, wow. by one of the engineers at Star City. And it still works after wow. all these years. <laughs> oh, there was me being excited about my Saturn V Lego model. I've got my Saturn V Lego, and there's no reason to not be happy about that. No, no, I'm very happy with that. I'm very happy with the number of pieces. I assume you noticed how many? Yeah. yeah. 1,969. I did see a Chinese ripoff, but it had, I think it was 2014 pieces. And I thought, no, missed that bit. But I've still got this one that I haven't put together yet. Ooh. 
Luna Landa. I didn't get that one. Wow. I have waiting for me the space shuttle discovery with Hubble. Yeah, I want that as well. Oh, nice. Which I I had been lusting after for a long time and watching everybody on my space Twitter building it and I was so jealous and I just yeah. couldn't I couldn't justify spending that much money on Lego for myself and then a very 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 good friend of mine when I had some bad year last year sent me that to cheer me up oh, nice. wow I had well I did have a, a bad health thing I had breast cancer and I had surgery and then this thing arrived and I was like Oh my gosh, I don't feel ill enough to deserve this Lego. It's amazing. <laughs> I remember when I first yeah. started getting into 3D printing, I was looking around because of all the models and so forth that you can download for free. And somebody made a two-scale Saturn V with gantry. And it's, all the parts are available for free. And I think he said that when it's fully assembled, it's like eight feet tall based on the scale. He has it. But he said that on, on his printer, it takes over three months just to print the parts because there's so much plastic. Wow. Wow. Could you just scale it down? <laughs> you can. That, that's, that's actually easy to do. I want to get some kind of model of Discovery because Discovery is, for me, the space shuttle because the best shuttle but she's always been the workhorse mm-hmm. I mean, she, she's like international rescue if if the discovery was <laughs> there <laughs> if there was going to be a problem discovery was there for backup and she's always been a diva as well if she didn't want to fly she wasn't going to fly oh don't i know it <laughs> how many days did i wait 115 yeah. <laughs> but it was definitely worth the wait that's the best launch i've ever seen even at that distance, were you still able to like feel that rumble in your chest when that went up? For shuttle, I was as close as you can be. I was at the press site, and yeah, oh my goodness. I think that's like 3 point something, 3.2, 3.4 miles. Yeah, you feel it, and it's, it's spectacular. I mean, there was a, the group of us there, and we had waited and waited for this bird to fly. It was a beautiful, clear, blue sky day, and when she flew I think we were all again quite gobsmacked that it was really happening so there was lots of whooping and cheering and clapping and you know go on girl and you know she kind of went up and you're just so mesmerised by it all and then you kind of go oh huh yeah sound where's the sound and that's when that sound just starts to creep up and it rumbles and and then you feel, you feel it you know you just feel it like thumping in your chest and I, actually, one of the people I was there with had decided we, we'd all been told if it was your first launch, you know, don't watch through your camera, watch with your eyes. If you've yeah. got a remote trigger, give it a go, but don't worry about the pictures, just experience it. And they'd set up a, just a small camera and put it on a video mode, put it on a table. And it's wonderful because when when you get to the point where the noise hits you, you see this camera just like starts wobbling, wobbling, and then bunk, it falls right off the table. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's actually, you know, I think that's better than if it had been stable on the table because you got to see genuinely this is the power of this vehicle. So yeah, I I'm, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be in that spot for for the SLS. Ooh, one day. Next time. Yeah. Was it even strong? For, I mean, as far, even what, like almost four times as far away from the SLS this time. Could you still feel it? I, I, I don't think I felt it, but maybe because I had a memory of 
how much you feel it. I was like, oh, it's not like that, so maybe I didn't feel it. Also, we were just just so high on adrenaline and excitement and cheering, and yeah, it, it was great. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal, damn! Because I, I remember the first time that I was supposed to go to a, a shuttle launch, it got scrubbed for range issues. Some idiot at Cape Canaveral Yacht Club decided they were going to have a regatta that day. and uh, Always with the boats. <laughs> <laughs> and so that didn't happen. So we, we couldn't actually get back for the next day that it was supposed to be launching. We, we asked which direction we need to be looking. We were, we were in Orlando at the time. And we knew exactly where to look. So we're, there we were at six o'clock in the morning by a, a trolley bus stop, <laughs> um, waiting for this shuttle to launch. And, and a group of German tourists came over to us thinking we were waiting for the bus. And they said, are you waiting for the bus? And we went, no, we're actually waiting for a space shuttle. And uh, the look on their face was amazing. <laughs> But did they stop and watch it with you? Yeah, when we assured them that it was going to happen, it was the weirdest mm-hmm. thing ever because you saw it and then about three minutes later you heard it, which was strange. It is really <laughs> weird, isn't it? Yeah, but I did go back and I got to see another launch. So I've seen three now. Um, so every time I see a launch, I get the mission patch that was involved with that. Mm-hmm. I managed to get hold of a first day cover for the launch of Hubble. So I got all the stamps and the franking and all that kind of stuff on there. I managed to get the mission patch for that. And I actually found a photograph of the crew with one of these first day covers actually holding one. It wasn't the one I had, but it was one of them. So I've got them together and I'm going to put them in a frame and, and put it up on the wall. So that'd be, that'd be cool. When, when that's yeah. Done. Oh, the classic, I'm going to put it in a frame and put it on the wall. I have so many space things. <laughs> I, I literally yesterday was, was trying to put something in the frame and it's an American sized bit of paper. And of course, my frame's don't quite fit and I've got a ah. I've got a Valentina Tereshkova like original old poster but also now like not only have I not got a frame I, all the stuff that's going on with Ukraine I'm like oh I don't really want to put it on my wall just now eh. but yeah at some point I think I just need to go on a framing course because to get things framed professionally costs a lot of money if they're weird sizes but I've got so many like photographs and like beer labels of oh giant leap that was another beer i had while i was out there yeah all sorts of little bits of ephemera that it would be so nice to you know have my own little gallery one day one day yeah i mean i think if i tried to put all my mission patches on a wall i'd take up the entire wall i think the first time i went to kennedy space center and they've got the area where you can look at all the patches on the wall and i thought yeah i like this i want this and I thought, it's going to cost me a fortune, but yeah. Yeah, that, that, that space shop they've got there is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I found the one at the Science Museum dangerous, let alone the one at Kennedy Space Center. Yeah, actually, that's true. They have, they've got better over the years, because yeah. I, I would say that when I first went out to America and was super excited about all the space stuff, it hadn't quite caught on enough here for there to be 
you know, shops that sold lunch boxes with astronauts and things on. I, I knew it was coming. In fact, at the time, I said I should start a range of children's clothing and toys. And I had the idea for uh, onesies about 10 years before they became famous too. <laughs> one day, I'll use one of my ideas and earn enough money I could go to space. Yay! <laughs> yeah, you really should patent those things when you come up with ideas. Oh, otherwise, I'll just keep living vicariously through all the people who do get to go to space. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's fair to say between us, we've got quite a lot of stuff, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, you know, we've got our share of things. Nothing like Richard Garriott has, but, you know, what can you do? Someday I'll take him up on his offer to go up to his New York yeah, house. Yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. And then lastly, I asked Kate about the astronauts that she met on her travels. Because you, you've met some quite interesting people through different events. I mean, have, have you met any of the the Apollo astronauts? Yep, I have met, let's think. So I have met Buzz Aldrin a number of times, Charlie Duke, lovely. Um, who else have I met? I did meet Gene Cernan, Al Bean, Fred Hayes, Ken Mattingly. I know I'm missing one, and I think it's my brain has frozen because of the cold weather. Uh, Jim Lovell. Yes, Jim Lovell. Ah, I met Jim Lovell when I was out for the space shuttle launch, that very first one that didn't happen, and I had a photo taken with him. And then when I went to interview him in London, when he was over for an event, I sort of took this picture to say, oh, look, we met before. And I asked, would he perhaps sign a picture for me? Which... I hadn't been able to do at the first event because it was an astronaut autograph signing for charity and they were all like hundreds of dollars. I think I think Buzz Aldrin was like $300. It's like, yikes. But he did. He signed this thing and there was a photographer there who took a photograph of Jim Lovell signing a picture of Jim Lovell with a picture of me and Jim Lovell on the table, which I thought was wonderful. Lovely, lovely picture. And then he came to do one of the space lectures up in Pontefract and you were able to get one thing signed. So I managed to get a print of this lovely picture of Jim Lovell signing a picture of Jim Lovell, the picture of me and Jim Lovell, and I got him to sign that. And I took a photo while he signed it. So I have a photo of Jim Lovell signing a photo of Jim Lovell signing a photo of Jim Lovell with a picture of me and Jim Lovell on the table. And that just really amuses me. <laughs> you, you can't get any more... <laughs> authentic signature than that really can you <laughs> no oh dear and yeah and Charlie Duke was absolutely lovely and bless him he signed well he didn't sign a picture for me at the time for my granny because I forgot to ask but I stayed in touch with him and he actually posted to me from America um, a picture of him his salute by the flag on the moon and he wrote to my gran, you know, a salute to you from the mountains of the moon. Let's go to the moon, Charlie Duke. And I was like, oh my God, that was really cool. I mean, my gran was very special to me. And as she got a bit older, she decided she didn't want things anymore because she knew that she didn't have that much longer. She was done. Um, but I wanted to find her things that, that were, yeah, more than just stupid objects, you know. I didn't want any of that tacky plastic stuff. And I, I think I did pretty well. I got her a message held up on the space station by a cosmonaut that said, Happy 90th birthday, Granny Grey. Wow. Wow. And the cosmonaut put his nice little suit on. He's doing a thumbs up. You can see the solar panels out of a window in the background. It's amazing. That's very <laughs> cool. And then I had to laugh because a few years later, 
British astronaut Tim Peake was up in space and the Queen turned 90 and he held up a little sign in space but his was like written with like a the felt tip or something and and it was like you know happy 90th birthday mom or something but the one for my granny was better yeah <laughs> I didn't know they had a printer yeah you know sometimes I stop and think I'm like wow so a piece of paper that was sent into space <laughs> then got printed on in space a message from my granny <laughs> and and she was delighted because I was on his friends and family list um, so I could email him while he was in space and I had emailed to say that I was going to see my grandmother for Christmas and I knew the next Soyuz crew was about to arrive for Christmas so you know I was talking about that wished him a Merry Christmas and he wrote back to me and said you know I hope Father Christmas brings you everything you want and say hello to your grandmother for me so I, I was like Granny, Granny <laughs> somebody in space just said hello to you she said I can't wait to boast to the WI sorry the Women's Institute um, so yes she did for the next few months she was like well I'm nearly 90 you know and I've got a friend in space <laughs> <laughs> so yeah when I when I got that picture I got that printed out and framed and wrapped it up for her and actually I, I did too I did one picture of him in his space suit when he was doing an, an EVA and then I did the other one where he's holding the sign for her so she opened the first one and she said oh she said, is this Anton is this my spaceman I said no granny our spaceman <laughs> and then she opened the other one and she just sat there and her jaw just dropped as she was reading this message and the rest of the family was Sarah what's going on and then she like held it up look that first Space Rocks was such a surreal moment for me because in the same room I had Tim Peake because we were in the green room bit and said Tim do you want a beer and I actually got beer out of the fridge and you know I was having a beer with Tim Peake and then I looked over and thought it's Brian May (laughs) what is going on (laughs) those moments in life are special the guy who was with me my photographer Alan Taylor Shearer is a good friend of the show he uh, is a huge Queen fan so I thought I'm I'm not going to approach Brian I'm going to let Alan do it because it meant a lot more to him than it did to me. I mean, his first son is called Freddie because of Freddie Mercury, and he has snakes and things. And the first snake that he ever owned was called Mercury after <laughs> Freddie Mercury. So I was going to tell you about my what I named my cat, but then I realised it's a very embarrassing thing to admit. So I don't think I will. <laughs> but suffice to say, I named my, my first cat when I was about eight after a wacky children's TV presenter. There's only two people I can think of at the moment, and you, you didn't call your cat Pat Sharp, did you? No, I do know Pat Sharp, and he's a nice guy too. No, I called him Timmy. It's not Timmy Mallet. <laughs> Couldn't possibly confirm or deny. <laughs> Actually, Timmy Mallet over the last few months has been going around the, the UK on a push bike and stopping off to paint a landscapes as he goes around. Yeah, yeah, he became he became a, a painter, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realise how good he actually is. I don't think I've seen his artwork, but I just remember as a kid, I was a big fan of Wacker Waves and the Wide Awake Club and Mallet's Mallet. And Yeah, well, I, I li- liked that show for different reasons to you. <clears throat> but it's not oh. Timmy Mallet. Michaela Strachan. Uh, yes, indeed. I, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about, so I'm just sitting here. It was a very cheaply made... <laughs> 
TV show for kids in the 80s or 90s where they had a game called Mallet's Mallet. Now, the idea of this game is you've got two kids sat on stalls. It's a word association game, so somebody says one word and you have to say another word that uh, associates to that word. Now, if you pause or stumble or whatever, he's got this foam rubber mallet that he smacks you on the head with (laughs) if you get it wrong. If you win the game, all you get is a plaster or a band-aid with a smiley face on it, and you put it on your knee, and you have to <laughs> waggle your knee at the camera. Uh, yep. It's the most bizarre TV show ever. But very compelling. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. (laughs) And is that the mouth, that big pink? The big pink and yellow thing. Pink and yellow thing. Yep. Okay. (laughs) And and he was infectiously enthusiastic. There you go. The big show that they used to have on the on the Saturday because you had Whackaday, which was in the school holidays, and the Wide Awake Club was on the Saturday, and they had a segment in the Wide Awake Club called the Sound Asleep Club, and Mike Myers the Mike Myers was in this TV show the Wayne's World guy you know he's in this yeah before he was famous (laughs) never heard of that one either (laughs) (laughs) oh the things you've missed out on free healthcare crazy children's shows and and now you understand why you know we have grown up to be as we have yeah in fairness i grew up on monty python and one of my staples during the 80s was danger mouse this is true oh absolutely love danger and of course we've got oh yes you do know that Shaun the sheep was one of the um things that went up and around the moon on artemis one the mission patch where it calls it bar artemis is quite brilliant. Are those available? Do you know, Kate? The patches or the sheep? The mission patches. I don't know. I've got a sticker, but not the patch. I would love to get one if they're, if they're yeah. available. They must be somewhere. But it is ESA, and they're not quite as good as NASA at yeah. commercialising everything. They're getting there. <laughs> oh yeah. Very slowly, but they're getting there. And it's because of because of people like Tim and um, Samantha Cristoforetti and um, Gianluca Palmitano. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, very big on being with the public and and things like that. So you know that's really cool that they're starting to come into their own. And they put a lot of money into education and outreach for the Rosetta mission, and I think that did quite well for them. I still love those uh, Once Upon a Time the cartoons that they did. Those are so great. Very sad though at the end. It was quite emotional. I know. I have a cuddly Rosetta. Oh, wow. (laughs) They say don't meet your heroes and and things, but when I met Matt Taylor at Space Rocks, uh, that was quite emotional for me. And the guy is so down to earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and Mark McCorker, and he's very down to earth as well. Uh, in fact, the last time I spoke to him, he said, "I've got a dash. I'm, I'm buying some Marmite off of somebody." Uh, he said, "We can't get it in Holland." It's, it, it was, <laughs> he came back with about six jars of it. He bought some off of this guy. Well, you, you've got a Marmite dealer. <laughs> <laughs> Because I always have a fact or a story or something random about pretty much everything, I'll spare you the story because it's a bit long, but um, I can tell you a fact, which is that uh, Bob Cabana, yeah. astronaut, former head of uh, Kennedy Space Center and now deputy administrator, mm-hmm. he does like Marmite. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's in the Love It camp. I do a lot of uh, streaming 
on Twitch. And I've got a lot of followers who are regulars who are from the UK. And I've been for charity events and so forth. You know, if we reach a certain amount during a charity, you know, I'll try something crazy. Like one of my latest ones is to try the Jelly Belly hot pepper beans that they've got, which includes uh, like habanero and and ghost pepper and stuff like that. And I've been tempted to, uh, I even mentioned this on stream the other night saying, Maybe for the next one, if we get to a certain amount, I'll actually agree to try Marmite. Oh, yeah. Marmite and toast is great. And some of my regulars from the UK were just like, no, don't. Don't do it. No, no, do it. Do it. Do it. It's great stuff. Just don't spread it too thick. Oh, put cheese on top. Oh, it's amazing. It's really good. (laughs) Uh, Marmite on crumpets with cheese on top. Yes, exactly. I was going to say, that's what you want. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) hey you know what wait a minute space kate told me to try it so that overrides you guys (laughs) yeah but what if you like it it's not even and it's if it's for charity that's even better for charity yeah i remember trying a twinkie the first time i I had no idea what a twinkie really was and wow that's revolting (laughs) i love i guess that's another one of those things you just got to grow up with it i love twinkies i will demolish them I was a bit disappointed with moon pies. Yeah, moon pies. Okay. Oh, I have an Artemis moon pie. <laughs> they made a, a, a limited number of um, Artemis moon pies. But the question is, do you eat it or do you save it? But then, Seriously? Mm, how, how well is that going to save? That's true. But if it's, keep... if it's the same as a regular moon pie, then just save it and buy a regular moon pie. Yeah, it's a little bit squished. I had to crush everything into my luggage because, of course, I came back with more space shirts from the <laughs> space shop in the Kennedy Space Center. I try- I was really good. I didn't buy the awesome-looking handbag. I'm not even a handbaggy type person, but they had a handbag that it had, like, the gold of a, a space helmet and then the, you know, the red and blue valves that you get on a, a spacesuit, like on an Apollo spacesuit. It looked so cool. The lining was a bit tacky, though. It was all NASA, like, just kind of repeated NASA logo. But yeah, the actual thing was quite cool. See, now you got me curious because I don't know that I've ever... We have English muffins over here, but we don't generally have crumpets. I'm looking at the differences and... Uh, oh, no, they're different. Very different. Oh, yeah, because they've got the little holes. You need those deep holes so the butter goes into the holes when it melts and then you put a little bit of Marmite on top, not too much, and then a bit of cheese. Oh, perfect. But yeah, crumpets are very versatile. You can do a lot of things with crumpets. It's like they're easy to make, too. Never attempted it. No, I mean, Either. Well, then I'm going to have to be the first of the three of us to try it. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm not even in England. <laughs> Give it a go. Let us know how you get on. There you go. Yeah, you've got to stream that. Oh, it's streaming <laughs> actually trying it or making it or what? <laughs> trying to make it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not against that. Looks like it's easy enough to do. It only takes, oh, it takes two hours. That's Most of that's for the Dota Rise. Improving and stuff. Yeah. I've never had a baking stream, but I've got my laptop, which I can use as a secondary remote location. So maybe. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a plan's coming together. <laughs> Thanks, right. Mark. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> I just printed the recipe off my printer, so. Just making me hungry. And I don't have any crumpets in the house. Uh-oh. Now, that was an impressive array of names that she pulled out of that bag. Yeah. I know I've met a few people through Space Rocks and things like that, but some of the places that Kate has been to, some of the conventions and different bits and pieces like that, yeah, she does get to meet a lot of famous people. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily famous to your average Joe, but to people in the space community. They're legends. Yeah. So not only did we talk about that, now John, I'm going to say one word, crumpets. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I did try it. I bought crumpet rings and everything. The problem is, the recipe that I got, it looks like everything was good. And, you know, the, the stuff was rising and bubbling like crumpets should. But for some reason, they said to put the thing at medium-high heat and let it go for 10 minutes. Upwards of 10 minutes. And I was just like, that does not seem right. Maybe I don't know if there's differences between what's considered to be high over there versus over here. I don't know. But it did what it was supposed to do. But then you take it off the, the grill, the griddle or whatever, and it's just... The bottom was completely burned. <laughs> I was like, medium high for 10 minutes? That seems really freaking hot. And it was. <laughs> so, yeah, I need to try it again. And uh, this time lower the temperature. I mean, when we heat crumpets that have already been baked, you do need to toast them on a quite high temperature. Sure. But that's sure. not the same as actually making them from scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they even said, you know, make it, and if you wanted to crisp it on both sides and flip it over after a while. But they still say, you know, just freeze it or whatever and then put it in the toaster when you're ready to have it and so forth. Even when it was burnt, it was still very soft, which I found interesting. It wasn't like crispy burnt. Mm -hmm. So it, it was still a very soft crumpet, but it was it was just like you could taste the burn all the way through. I'm like, no, no, the, this medium high is just not happening. Because where they said it should have been after like 10 minutes, it was at around five minutes. So I'm like, this, this is cooking way too fast. <laughs> so yeah, I'll try it again. But sadly, the first attempt was a failure. But it looked like it was definitely on the right yeah, track. Yeah, it'll trial and error, isn't it? We shall see. The problem is, it's like three hours just to get ready for yeah. it. Because you have to put it in, you have to let it rise, then you have to add some more things, and then let it rise, and add some more things, and let it rise again. It's like, oh, come on. So it's, it's not like... you. You give it half an hour and you're done. It takes a while for it to for the dough to get ready, where it's in the proper state to be made. This is probably why I haven't known anybody to actually make them from scratch. <laughs> well, they're not available over here. It's just it, they're not a thing here. I mean, for me, Sainsbury's sell them. You can buy eight of them for fifty-two pence. Yeah. <laughs> not gonna happen here. Try and fail, but I will try again. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. What? It's been a packed show, hasn't it? It has been. A lot going on. And, and this is what we intend to do from now on, is um, incorporate the sky guides and the objects of the month, along with our news. And in future, we're going to not just have space stuff, which we pretty much had a lot of space stuff this month, but... You know, anything that we can incorporate, so science, technology, sci-fi, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I know some of that sort of borderlines on some of the things you include on your podcast as well, actually. That's all right. So what? Not a big deal. 
but obviously I'd like to thank you, John, for coming back on the show. It's been a while. It has been. We need to we need to stop these uh, excessive time periods where I'm not here. Well, I intend to do a big show once a month, so that'll be good. I'd also like to thank Ross Hockham from UK Astronomy for bringing us his Sky Guide and Will from Twice Brewed Stargazing and Will Photography for coming on for the Objects of the Month because uh, we've been missing those for quite a while. Obviously, Kate Arkless Gray for coming on board and talking with us. When this show goes out, the photograph of her with her mission patch should be on the honorary crew members wall by then and uh well there's one thing i always like to say and that's thanks for listening stay safe everybody and we'll speak to you all again real soon toodles i say toodles well that about wraps it up for this episode of tgp nominal if you want to get in touch with us then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com where your input is our output or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.